Well, let's read Romans chapter 6, and we'll read uh, verses uh, right through the chapter, but then we'll concentrate on verses 1 to 14 as we study it together. Paul writes, what shall we say then? And what he means is, in light of the gospel, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, and that's Paul being as emphatic as he can, no, he's saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then Paul asks, another round of the same question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, there are some headings on the back of the service sheet that you'll find helpful, and if you keep your Bibles open or the Bible text on your phone. It's been great for me as I preach through Romans to have lots of comments from you in conversations and emails and so on. Please continue with that. It's great for us as we preach to receive comments and encouragement Let me uh, very quickly just navigate us into Romans chapter 6 for those who are new. Paul spent the first three chapters explaining the gospel. Uh, Every Sunday, it's good for us to repeat what the gospel is. Here we go again. Uh, The gospel, the good news, is that we are justified, which means declared righteous. God says to us, you are righteous by grace alone. Not because you deserve it, not because you contribute anything to it. Entirely by God's gracious mercy. You're justified, declared righteous by grace alone through faith alone. All you and I must do to receive the gospel is to come empty-handed to Jesus. That's faith. Faith is, is not an action. It's not bringing any merit to God. Faith is simply holding out your hands to receive the gospel that is of grace and of mercy. You are declared righteous, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and then in large, bold letters, in Christ alone. The gospel has its foundations in the death of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is how we are justified before God. Now, that's the gospel. And Paul gets there in chapter 3, and from there on in through to the middle of the book, chapter 8, he carefully and very lovingly and very warmly, sometimes you think of of Paul and his writing, or the gospel is like a kind of forensic, logical explanation of truth. It is that, but Paul is as much at pains to press home the pastoral or the implications or the real-life difference that the gospel makes. And he began in chapter 4 by saying that the gospel is the great leveler building unity. We had uh, two new families in church at the first service, one from uh, uh, Tennessee and one from India, South India. The couple from India are freezing cold. And and they were relieved this morning that the temperature has risen. I told them not to to think this was how it was going to continue. But there they are from Tennessee, from South India, and, and many of us just from boring old Edinburgh. We're all different. 
They had different accents. It was obviously different. And Ben's up here leading this morning, different accent. But the point is that the gospel means we're all the same. So Ben's up here. He's gone now, so I can say this. He's got a mind like a, a rocket scientist, another PhD. And yet there are children up in that room in the first service in youth church who are clear Christians. There is no difference between them. All are justified by grace through faith in Christ. And there is nowhere on earth like a local church where everybody in this community is fundamentally united. And when you have a community that is fundamentally united, where there is no difference between any of us, the potential impact of that community in a society, in a culture, is radical. For one thing, it's not looking in on itself to sort out divisions. It's united and therefore able to focus on its mission, which is evangelism. Then Paul went on to look at how the gospel is the great reassurer building our confidence. And it's been striking through chapter 4 and 5 how many of you have been encouraged that the Apostle Paul wants to reassure us in the realm of doubt. We doubt that God will get us home to everlasting glory. And the gospel reassures us that he will. Why? Because we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. The most radical thing that God has ever done and will ever do is give his son to die. And if he's done that, and if he's raised Jesus from death to life, he will get us to glory. Now, chapter 6, 7, and the first half of chapter 8 Paul turns to a big problem for the Christian life or the church. And that is the problem of sin. And there are different questions or problems we might have about sin in our life as Christians. Now, I'm just making the assumption that if you are a Christian, if you have come empty-handed to the cross and received forgiveness, I'm just making the assumption that you still have sin in your life. Do speak to me afterwards if you don't. I suspect the queue will be short. But that raises questions for us. Here are the two main realms of questions that Paul addresses in these three chapters. Number one, if I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does it matter how I live as a Christian? Does it matter if I go on sinning? Now, that might be an intellectual question. It might be a question that leads you to a kind of false understanding of how you should live. Or it might be a question that just destroys you. 
Because you go on sinning in your life, and does it not matter to God? That's one realm. Here's another realm of questions in relation to sin. If I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if that's the gospel, and if that is, as Paul says, the power of God for salvation for all who believe, and if that power is of sufficient magnitude to raise Jesus from death to life and to give us life, if we've been born again, if we're new humanity, all that stuff that Paul has been saying, then why is it that yesterday... Or last week, I struggled with the same sin that I've struggled with for 20 years, and it's not getting any better. Is the gospel really true? Is it true that it's powerful enough to change your life? Because I don't seem to be making all that much progress. Now, they're good questions. There are good questions that Christians have, and there are good questions that people who are not convinced Christians have about what Christians claim to believe. Now, it's the first area that Paul addresses here in chapter 6. That is, if I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, does it matter how I live as a Christian? Does it matter if I go on sinning? And then he picks up the, 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 the second question about the battle with sin in chapters 7 and 8. Now, just so that you can see that this is the question that Paul is addressing, look with me at verses 1 and 15. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, what's behind the question? Remember the drum that Paul has been beating again and again through the early chapters of Romans. We are justified, that is made righteous, by grace through faith. There is nothing we can do by way of good works or religious observance to merit our salvation. However hard we try to climb the ladder that is of, of, of good works or moral goodness or religion, it will never be good enough to save us. So all we can do is come empty-handed to receive the gift of salvation, the declaration of righteousness. Now, surely that poses a problem for us. Now, I've heard this analogy, and it may be helpful uh, to you. Some Christians are like policemen, and some are like bandits. I'm a policeman, not a bandit. Let's see where you are. Christians who are like policemen are like this. They, they, they think like this. Or they might think they don't, but they really do by the way they live. Or by what they say, or by how they preach, or about how they speak to their kids, or their grandkids about uh, Christian faith. Surely the policeman says, what you are saying, Paul, will create chaos. Chaos. If justification by grace alone through faith alone is how it is, if whatever you do in your life, you've got that ticket in your pocket that says on judgment day you hand it to God and you say, I'm justified, I will live forever in the new creation, then there's nothing to stop people just going on sinning. And this Christian community that you have might be united theoretically in the gospel, but there's havoc nothing to stop you. 
You've got a ticket in your pocket, stamp justified, which you carry through life, and it doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is that when you meet Jesus on Judgment Day, you present him with a ticket and you get in. Now, to be fair, Paul, is that not the implication of what you have taught? Paul, if the gospel is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, what about the chaos, the license, the lax living, that a doctrine like that will invite surely? So, think of if you're a parent, or if you're, think of your parents if your parents are Christians. All my instincts with my teenage children is to teach them that the gospel is not about having a ticket in your pocket that says you are forgiven and righteous in God's sight, and therefore, if you live like this, or if you do this, or don't do that, it's not going to change your status before God. I don't want to say that to them. Because my kids might conclude, well, it doesn't matter how I live. That's the worry of the Christian who's like the policeman. That's me. But what about the other kind of Christian, the bandit? You might be a bandit. The bandit thinks, okay, cool, I've got my ticket, I'll live how I like. Now, they're caricatures, but just work with the caricatures. You've got to present extremes and just, just think of the default of how we think. The bandit thinks, oh, well, I'll live how I like, or they just live how they like. They might not allow their heads to convince themselves that that's fine, but they just do it. They just live how they like. In fact, some might say, and Paul takes the argument to an extreme, if I go on sinning, it just magnifies grace more and more. The more I sin, the more God's grace is evident in forgiveness. And when grace is magnified, the glory of God is magnified. It doesn't matter if I go on on sinning. You know, every Sunday we come, and as we do every week, uh, we were led in a prayer of confession, not to, in a sense, uh, build up favor before God that means we're justified. We were all justified when we came in, if we're Christians. We're all righteous eternally forgiven if we're Christians when we came in. And we pray that prayer and we wipe the slate clean again and we start again for another week and that sin is forgotten in God's mind and we go back out on Monday and we just carry on as we were last week and come back next week. Is that not the implication, Paul, of what you're saying? I don't think many of us would come in and think, well, okay, my life last week has been pretty bad, and actually it just glorifies God because he's forgiven me. I'm not sure many of us are like that. I think many of us just default to think that, well, does the gospel really make any difference? So are you a policeman or a bandit? Or are you somewhere in the middle of these two extremes? And I think the middle of these two extremes is we are just indifferent to sin or confused about what the gospel says about it. 
Now, that's the question in verses 1 and 15. And, and just to say that Paul takes two and a half chapters to answer these questions. And he does it in about 35 different ways. And there are 35 opportunities for the penny to drop. Yeah? Because it's... It, well, let's hope it will drop for many of us in different ways. It's a great question. The arguments sound persuasive. The argument of justification by grace alone through faith alone seems to invite more sinning, or at least not prevent it. So what's Paul's answer to the question? What shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No! That's how Paul sounds in the Greek. Not by no means. No! No! It's about as emphatic as a no as you can get in, in Greek. No is the answer. Okay, Paul, why not? That's fair. Now, the answer Paul gives is powerful, is searching, is wonderful, but it takes him three chapters. Now, we're going to do 2 to 14 today, maybe touch briefly on 15 to 23, and then Rog will come back next week and he'll get into chapter 7 and this battle going on in our lives. What do we make of that? And how is it we get to chapter 8, verse 1, when in spite of that, Paul says, you have no condemnation? Now, before we turn to the answer he does give as to, does it matter if I go on sinning? Let me give you the answer that he doesn't give. If that makes sense, you'll see what I mean just in case any of us default to think that this is the answer. So here's the answer he doesn't give. Okay, Paul says, it's a fair question, a fair objection. Here's my answer. This doctrine, the gospel, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, actually what I meant to say is that we are justified mostly by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a 95% grace alone, through faith alone, Yes, you have a ticket in your pocket, but that ticket says justified, open brackets, 95% assurance, 5% down to the evidence in your life that you really were justified. Yep. Now, that's not the answer we want, but certainly it's an answer that you could say, well, that makes sense. I do have to come to church every week. I do have to make progress in my Christian life. Now, you're thinking here, is he saying we don't have to be part of a local church? Is he saying that I don't have to make progress in my Christian life? He's not saying that. What I'm saying is that I'm, I'm coming at you and saying, if your conclusion is in order to stand before God on judgment day and be declared righteous, that you need to do these things, that's wrong. Although it would make more sense, wouldn't it? The Christian who is the policeman takes a great big sigh of relief and says, I told you, son, it's 95% justification by grace through faith, but if you mess up, and the Christian who is the bandit says, I knew it was too good to be true. Now, much of the Christian church at this point abandons the gospel that is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and adds in religion. 
or control. And Paul says, no, 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 that's no answer. Because if you add that in, so I was with a, a lady this week, we went for a walk, and I wasn't sure that she was a Christian, and as I began to talk to her, it became clear that she wasn't, and I asked her all the questions that Paul is asking. I said, are you sure? Are you certain that when you die, and that may happen for her, you will be with God forever? And she said to me, how on earth can I be certain? How can I know? I said, do you know? Are you certain? And then she said, well, I tried. That's a giveaway, isn't it? And Paul wants us to be certain. And he wants us to be certain as we look at our sin. Now, here we go. Here's the answer. And if two-thirds of you who are Christians understand the answer by the end of today, we've done pretty well. Because you, you, you're all wired differently, and you might be more wired into chapter 7. Let's see how we go, though. Paul's answer is that being a Christian means being in Christ. Now, he's already introduced us to that, and the New Testament refers to Christians all the time as being in Christ. What does he mean by being in Christ? And, and, and run with the, that little word in, in Christ. In Christ, literally. So let's read from verse 1 to 4 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's little Eric. He's gone quiet again. No, he's not. Now, try to understand this. It's really, really important. When... Oh, wait till Eric stops crying. When you became a Christian, when you responded to the invitation, or when you came empty-handed to the cross, two things happened. You were declared righteous. You were given a ticket that said, whatever happens in the future, whatever has happened in the past, however much you mess up in the Christian life, However much your life as a Christian is weak and pathetic and you lose the battle with temptation every single day, whatever happens, that ticket has justification by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, in your pocket, and you will give it to him and he will have you in eternity 
and there is nothing that can take that away from you. That's what you get if you come empty-handed to the cross. You are declared righteous. But something else happened when you came empty-handed to Christ at the cross. Jesus has not simply done something for you, or God has not just done something for you. He's not just declared you righteous. He has done something inside of you. He has literally come into you by the Holy Spirit and Christ lives in you. Now, I'm going to come at this a number of ways so we understand this. For the theologians in the room, I always get the words the wrong way around. Uh, when you become a Christian, you are, you are declared righteous. Righteousness is imputed to you. You are righteous, like Jesus. But when you become a Christian, righteousness or Christ-likeness or the character of Christ or the person of Christ is imparted into you by the Holy Spirit. Theologians call that union with Christ. It's why Paul talks about being in Christ all the time. In John 15, John talks about you are a branch connected to a vine that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is like the trunk. You are a branch. And immediately you think you have a relationship with Jesus because you believe in him. You don't. You do, but you have much more than that. You are you're part of him. He's part of you. Christ lives in you. Now, Paul elaborates on this uh, all the way through these uh, chapters. I think the best uh, illustration of this is, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit into chapter 8, but uh, think, of, uh, think of one of these action and adventure films. We watched one last night on Netflix, at least we watched it as a family, and Sally and I watched the first 25 minutes before we fell asleep. As you do. And it was about uh, a ship, a liner that was taken over by baddies, and these sort of Navy SEALs came and rescued it, that kind of thing. And uh, what happens is when the baddies take it over, they take over what bit of the ship? The bridge, yeah? And that's where you steer the ship from. That's where command is. And the Navy SEALs came on, and what did they do? They took the bridge. They took the bridge, and therefore they took control. And when you become a Christian, when you come empty-handed to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Christ, comes into your life, your mind, your heart, your body, and he takes control of the bridge. Your inner being or your soul is Christ's. 
Now go back to the illustration of the ship. The Navy SEALs might have won the bridge, but where are all the baddies? Well, they're on deck four, or they're in this room, or they're in that room. They're all over the ship. And there's a long, long, long battle ahead to liberate every deck on the ship, to liberate every room in the ship, to the point where every rivet is in the hands of the Navy SEALs. Now, in your life as a Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken over the bridge. Your inner being, your soul is God's. But it will take a long time for the Holy Spirit that has the bridge to take over every part of your life and win every rivet till it is free of sin. How long will that take? Until your sinful body dies and with it the sin that is in your sinful body will die forever. Now, that's a good illustration, I hope, of what happens when the Holy Spirit... Let me have one more. So, you know up here, we preachers, we keep banging on with some drums. We keep saying the same things, like the gospel every week. Here's another one of our bugbears. This building is just what? A building. Helpfully, this building doesn't look like a church building. It's all black. It's a theater. It's a great building, but it's a building. God is not in this building kind of moving around in the ether. Where is God? God is living in the person of his son or his son's spirit inside of all of your bodies. This is not a sanctuary. You are the sanctuary of God. And when you begin to think like that, it radically changes the way that you think in relation to sin. So what would you rather have? Three options. Number one, would you rather have a book, if you're a golfer, that says, How I Can Play Like Rory McIlroy, who's on a bit of a downer, but he's still the best. That's option one. Well, that's fine for a Christmas present. Or would you rather, option two, have a round with Rory, where you get four hours of his instruction? Or would you rather, option three, have his talent within you. So that when you stand on the tee, you hit the ball with the ability that he has. Which would you rather? So is the Christian life, me picking up this book as a manual of how to live a good life? That's option one. Or is it that I walk through life, as it were, with Jesus looking over my shoulder, saying, look, let me give you a bit of coaching on this and a bit of coaching on that. Or is it that I have Christ Jesus, God's Son, living in me by His Spirit, walking with me every day, sleeping with me every moment, controlling as the hymn does all I do and say? What would you rather? 
Well, the glorious truth is that we have the last in the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Now, let me uh, turn with that mind, with our, these illustrations in mind, to exactly what Paul says, and hopefully we'll understand it. When Jesus died, we died with him, and therefore we died to sin. Now, here's Paul's logic. When Jesus died, we died with him, and therefore we died to sin. Every time in these verses, Paul speaks about Jesus' death, in the same breath, he speaks about Christians dying with Jesus. So look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him. Verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ. Remember the stuff about you're no longer in Adam, you're in Christ. When Christ was killed, our old self was killed with him. What did Jesus' death achieve? Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore for those who believe the penalty for sin, and therefore those who believe are declared righteous. You've got that ticket in your pocket. That will never be taken away from you. It says 100% justified, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not majoring on the declaration of righteousness that you carry. He is majoring on the fact that for the believer, through empty-handed trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ has come into you and the power or the dominion of sin or the mastery of sin in your life has been broken. The Holy Spirit now has the bridge, has the controls. And before we became Christians, the bridge was in the hands of Satan, the prince of this world. One of the ways, I think, and we'll get onto this in chapter 7 and 8, that that becomes crystal clear to us is that it brings your conscience alive. So there's a big difference in the Christian life between struggling with sin, which we all do all the time, and suddenly coming to realize that you know you're struggling with it. That's your conscience. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can he who died to sin uh, still live in it? So when you became a Christian, what Jesus did on the cross, when he killed sin forever, he killed your sin. So how long is your sin going to last in your life? Until your sinful body dies. And when your sinful body dies, your sin will be no more. And you will be raised with a a, 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 a new body and you will never sin. You will be free from the very presence of sin. So how do you fight sin in the Christian life? As a victim or as a victor? I mean, how long is sin going to last in your life and mine? Another 20 years, 30 years, 5 years, 50 years? And then for all eternity, it's gone. It's going to die because it's been killed. It's mortally wounded. Theologians talk about the mortification of sin. Kill sin because it has a death sentence over its head. It's finished. So kill it. The other side of the coin, when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him 
and therefore we live a new life in God. How can we be sure that we have died to sin? How can we be sure that sin's grip, sin's power over us has been broken? Because God raised Jesus from the dead, and God raises believers with him to a new life in God. Look at what Paul says, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. What did Jesus' resurrection achieve? Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. But the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, in a sense, where all of this is going in Romans is that when you reached out empty-handed to Jesus, you were saved at that moment from the penalty for sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. You have the declaration of righteousness in your hand. When you reached out empty-handed to Jesus, you were not only saved from the penalty of sin, and given that declaration of righteousness, you were liberated by the indwelling Spirit from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. You are victorious over sin. The sin in your life is dying. It was nailed to the cross of Christ. You have power to conquer sin. When you reached out empty-handed to Jesus, you were not only saved from the penalty and the power of sin, you were saved at the cross, past tense, from the presence of sin. You don't have that yet, but you have been guaranteed it. And you will live for eternity free from the presence of sin. Now, where is Paul going with all of this? Let me finish with this, verses 11 to 14. What's the application of this? Is it so you leave church this morning feeling, feeling that you have died to sin and been raised with Christ? You're going to feel in a high? Maybe. What does Paul say, verse 11? So therefore, you also must consider yourself or literally reckon or think yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's saying again? If the Christian life is based on how you feel, you'll just go round in circles. If your assurance is based on how you feel, you'll go round in circles. If your approach to sin and your battle with sin is based on how you feel on Monday morning, you'll go round in circles. Paul says, reckon or think yourselves as to who you are. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Because it's 
dying. Kill it as a victor, not as a victim. I think it was a, a, a monarch, I'm not sure who it was or whether it was to a future king or a future queen that they said this, my, my dear boy or my dear girl, always remember who you are. You know, when we gather around the Lord's table every month, we remember who the Lord Jesus is. You know, we could do well to allow ourselves to gather around the Lord's table and also remember who we now are. The one who justified us that we remember at communion is also the one who lives in us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let me finish with this illustration, which may be a little direct, but is probably helpful. And it's an illustration to the men in the room, because I'm a man, and I find these illustrations easier to come by. So men struggle with watching things, whether it's television or online, that they shouldn't. Yeah, a classic illustration. A classic illustration that is probably true of all the men in this room. Or think of things. Yep. So what do you do when you sit down at your computer screen? What do you want? Do you want the manual to turn to for top tips? Do you want Christ beside you, looking over you with his shoulder, looking over you with his covenant eyes? Do you want some kind of spreadsheet that goes to your mate telling you you've messed up again? Or do you want, like Rory McElroy in the tea, Christ Jesus inside of you that makes you sit there and think, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. Not because I've overcome this with some kind of superpower within me, but because that's not who I am anymore. And when I'm in the new creation, it will never cross my mind ever to ever think like that. So you sit there and you think, this is just not who I am. This is who I was. It's not who I am. And you get up and you walk away. You see what you've done? You've done it by not defaulting in your Christian life to abandon justification by grace alone, through faith alone, to build up some kind of gospel that says, if I do this, God will not punish me. You do it because along with justification comes sanctification, which is transformation, which is the Spirit of Christ living in you. You see the difference? You get up from your seat because the person sitting on that seat in front of the computer screen is Jesus Christ living in you. Now, sometimes you won't get up from the seat and you'll press the button. And you'll keep pressing the button until the new creation where the thought will never enter your head again. Next week, we'll worry about why sometimes we press the button. But if you sit in that seat and think, look, Jesus Christ is sitting here by his Spirit. 
I want to encourage you that that will bring a whole new dimension to the way that you battle in the Christian life. As the monarch said to his son, remember, son, remember who you are. Let's pray. Father, life is hard for us all in these and other realms. Help us, Lord, to remember who we are. As we gather around the Lord's table, that's maybe a helpful analogy. Yes, we need to remember first who he is and what he has done for us. Thank you, Lord, that we do have in our pockets. We do have in our pockets a declaration of righteousness by grace through faith in Christ that will never be taken from us. But we also have Christ in us, changing us from the inside, the very core of our being, our souls. And one day, every rivet will be won. And all the battles will be done. Help us, Lord, every day to hear these words. Remember who you are. Remember that Christ lives within you by the Holy Spirit. Remember you are united with him. And we pray that all for his sake.